Well, I promised another recording, and just as with last time, I'm not really in the mood for it, but um, what I've noticed with podcasting is sometimes you just have to do it, and then it's done. It's one of those things. It's like journaling or something, I suppose. If you just go dive into it, then it works out, but yeah. Um, So, okay, so this is what I wanted to mention Actually, I don't recall what my original um, second part of the original podcast was now, but I think it was venturing into some kind of deep terrain with um, this this question of how do you fix AI? And then there were a colleague, friend of mine, was mentioning it would be nice to have a system two reasoner and he's he's referring to to Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize laureate economist, a psychologist actually, who wrote in Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. He wrote, which was a best selling book a few years ago, which I read by the way to write my own book. There's a little section on his book in my book, but in Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, he says, look, we can just conceptually consider two systems. Don't take this seriously. Like, don't go looking as a neuroscientist. Don't go poking around in somebody's, you know, frontal cortex for systems, <laughs> right? Right. System two must be in here somewhere. No, no. It's just, it's kind of a useful handle or even a metaphor. It's unclear. There's some there's some reality that he wants to ascribe to it, otherwise it wouldn't be a useful metaphor. But the this, this safest thing to think about System 1 and System 2 is that they're just, they're just conceptual handles for us to get a, to, you know, get a grip on what's happening when we, when we make inferences. And so, roughly speaking, Kahneman, along with his, I think, late now colleague, Amos Tversky, spent his entire career looking at ways in which we improperly reason or we infer incorrectly. And notoriously, people are terrible at doing statistical reasoning, for instance, so that we just don't have our intuitions about what follows from what when we're doing specifically statistical thinking or reasoning tend to lead us astray so that we we will make um, we te- we make some kind of um, predictable. In other words, you can predict that many people will make them statistical errors. And we also fall victim to a number a number of basically biases and illusions. And you hear about this from time to time. This kind of work that Kahneman and Tversky did has has permeated into mainstream thinking so the media will talk about confirmation bias when we expect to see, you know, we expect to see what we already believe. We'll, we, we, what we try to do is we look for evidence to prove what we already believe. So that's like just putting a label on something that's fairly commonsensical, right? So if you have a confirmation bias, and everybody to some degree does, you, whatever it is that you believe, you're naturally disposed to seeing the world in such a way that it confirms those beliefs, hence confirmation bias. And um, that can be a problem because you will discount or even ignore evidence to the contrary, which might be uh, in a more accurate picture of what's going on. So confirmation bias is generally speaking bad. 
And there are other things like recency bias and so on where if you, so if you get, there's something called priming in psychology where if you, say if there's uh, a major catastrophic event like Notre Dame burns down or the cathedral did burn down <laughs> or uh, there's a, there's a terrible air, airplane crash that hits the news and people die and there's images of burning bodies and so on then you will be primed to think that the world is sort of more dangerous and the probability of these kind of things happening in the immediate future are much greater than they actually are. So you get just primed to see disaster when you have a recent experience of disaster. And, you know, that again is kind of common sense. People can say, you know, I mean, we, the, what's, what's furthering the common sense idea is that they, Kahneman actually kind of quantified how this works so that if you're primed, you know, if you take test subjects and they're primed in a certain way, you can actually like do fairly straightforward experiments to see what number of them actually, you know, counterfactually say something and then after priming say something else. And you can kind of figure out how in a population of cognizers or people, how much something like priming and recency bias affects us. And there are, there are other, there are other well-known biases that, that he points to. So Kahneman's thesis um, in his, in his book, uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, is that if you think of us having to, if you think of our inferential mechanisms, kind of generally speaking, as having two systems, system one and system two, System two is the system that we fall back on when we need to think something through and be careful about the conclusion that we draw. It's not necessarily the same as a, a particular logic like deductive logic or something like that, but it's just, it's simply the effortful calculations that we make, the effortful cogitations that we make to arrive at a careful and we hope true conclusion. And system one are, are basically, system one is basically everything else, which is what we're doing kind of all the time. We fall back on system two kind of when, we fall back on system two when we, when it's necessary, but our brains are evolved or otherwise have developed so that system one thinking generally works. And so unless we, unless we wander into a serious problem, we're going to make quick inferences, which is the domain of system one. System one is full of these biases, but these biases actually also have a just a, a rationale. So we can't we can't do lengthy and expensive calculations or cogitations when we need to make snap judgments and when we have just things that immediately present in our environment. We just don't have the time, and also it's expensive to think. It actually burns a lot of calories to use your brain. So it's better to have, it's actually better to have quick inferential mechanisms in place that handle the majority of cases and then fall back on difficult or more difficult thinking as required. So, but the, the problem is, is all the biases enter into our cognitive web, as it were, into, in system one thinking, Right. And to some extent, I think you can't fully eliminate them in system two thinking, but certainly you can ref by reflection, you can you can do a better job. 
But so we like we carry a, a bag of, of quick inference capabilities with us, but we also introduce biases into our way of thinking. So my friend and colleague was saying, well, one way we could extend AI is to build an ideal epistemic system, basically, that is able to think or we can use it as a kind of ideal epistemic standard. And by epistemic, I mean the theory of knowledge, right? So the system will have inculcated in it proper rules of reasoning for statistical reasoning and for other kinds of thinking. And we can use that as a kind of touchstone or a comparison point with our own thinking. And that will not only represent a, a move towards more intelligent artificial intelligence, but it will also be useful for us to straighten out things like Oh, I don't know, conspiracy thinking and the the seemingly increasing you know propensity for people to fall for various schemes and misinformation and to perpetuate misinformation online. And just this general sense that we're we've kind of that we're not like we're really far off the mark. With a lot, what what you know, with a, a lot of the discussion and interaction that's going on online on social media and and otherwise is really really far off of any kind of ideal ideal mark, right? So we're just put. There's a lot. There's a big concern about misinformation, and there's even a concern that people are losing their ability to actually assess evidence correctly and make the right conclusions given whatever what it, whatever the context is, whatever it is that they're trying to think about. So, so my response, my response was my first response is it's precisely the problem that we're trying to codify big picture ideas like reasonableness as opposed to rationality. And I can talk about that distinction, but it's precisely our enthusiasm for codifying big picture culture ideas like reasonableness in technology, in mechanisms, in computers, that that's precisely the root of the problem that's leading us down this path. So more of that is not going to be a good thing. So you have to see that clearly to see why there's a pushback, why I have a pushback with that idea. There's a second reason that I have a pushback with that idea. The first one that I just said, which is, is we don't need more of that actually. When it comes to big picture ideas for homo sapiens, for us, for people in culture and community, we need a, a big broad-based idea of um, what's reasonable to believe and what's not reasonable to believe. And it needs to be inclusive because we're not the Taliban or whatever. We're a diverse modern Western democracy. We have to enter, be willing to entertain a whole host of ideas, all of which are reasonable, all of which we can, we can sort of inter, interdependently, right? Like we can all kind of agree that the people with different diverse ideas can all be reasonable. There's a sense in which reasonableness does not have to attach to the specific thing that you believe. So if you're a Quaker, the Christian, right? I think Quakers, right? Or even if you're one of the guys with the horse and the buggy, you know, in Pennsylvania, um, 
the Mennonites or uh, is it Quakers? Are they the Quakers? We can, like, that seems a little bit bizarre, and somebody, a new atheist like Daniel Dennett or Sam Harris or someone would say, well, those people are completely unreasonable. They believe, not only do they believe that this guy rose from the dead thousands of years ago, but they also have these really unhelpful ideas about technology so that they're running, they're still doing barn raising and so on, and they're running, they're, you know, running around with horses and, and buggies, but what I'm trying to propose is, is any concept of reasonableness that works for a modern Western democracy has to incorporate a diversity of religious beliefs. So you can't just be, you can't just be off, the, off the page, off the list of reasonable people if you believe something like that. On the other hand, if you believe something like all Jews should die, you know, well, probably we want to say, yeah, that's not reasonable Probably want we want then we're going to venture into something that has a that we're going to venture into more distinctly value laden waters and talk about moral issues, moral philosophy instead of epistemology. But for now, anyway, I want to just say that whether somebody's an atheist or a New Age mystic or uh, evangelical Christian in Mississippi or a Hasidic Jew or a Muslim or not any religion whatsoever, just a stoic vegan, these are all reasonable positions to carve out depending on. And so our concept of reasonableness involves our ability to have our own, you know, form our own beliefs and have our own lives and live together. And still we have this concept of getting at the truth and pointing our brains at the right Right problems, right? So we, so the, right the all the different people who have all these different background beliefs can also all agree that oh yeah, that's Russian manipulation of an election. That's what we want to get to. That's the functioning democracy. So the question is like, what underwrites that view of reasonableness? This inclusive but still very powerful and useful view of reasonableness. And I would like to suggest that. Whatever it is, it's not something that you can program, okay? Like, that's not what it is. Um, and so, in other words, to put it another way, the very effort at writing it all down is going to ruin it. That's, that's problem one. And problem two is, even, is equally insidious or invidious, which is that whoever is writing all that stuff down there's going to be a constant temptation, basically, if it were successful and accepted, which it never would be, but if it were, there would be a constant temptation for people to use that to exclude groups. <laughs> like this is how people work, right? Like, so if you could ever get a normative standard that everybody could agree on and you could write it up in a system, like some kind of cartoonish checker of, of, of validity or something, that's going to be used as the biggest weapon to discriminate I mean, invariably, that's going to be some kind of problem in culture, right? Like that, that's going to be a problem. So that's what I would say about that idea. And then, so, and then the follow-up would be, so there's this, there's this, we've got to get at this question of reasonableness that isn't on the one hand demarcating too narrowly so that we exclude people who just disagree with us. And on the other hand, we don't want to pull in, oh yeah, and it's also fine to believe that 9-11 was an inside job or that NASA staged the lunar landing 
somewhere in, in uh, you know, outside of Houston or whatever it is. Um, you know, you can really be pissed off as much as you want about governments and you can hate U.S. foreign policy. And I'm certainly sympathetic. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the, the, my, I'm just using this as an, exa- an example because it comes to mind readily of something that I consider to be quite crazy. Um, the lunar, the idea that the, that the lunar landing was faked, for instance, and then the other idea that uh, then President George W. Bush just had American Airlines fly into some buildings so that he could get some oil or something like you hear these ideas and you go, look, how do I know that's not true? Well, what I'm saying is, is that people should be able to assess claims made like that. Um, and there should be some generally accepted standard of reasonableness that we can all agree on where it, it's, it's possible for us as a society, as individuals, and in our institutions like the media to sift through bullshit. So we should believe, for instance, that Russia probably meddled with the 2016 elections. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they did that. And we shouldn't probably believe that NASA was... Um, you know, didn't have enough funding and they were racing in the Cold War too fast. And so they just said, fuck it, let's just stage the lunar landing. Probably you shouldn't believe that, right? Um, But you should probably believe that Russia, like I said, meddled in the election and so on and so forth. These are the ideas. So yeah, we don't want, I don't think that's going to be captured in a machine anytime soon. In fact, I don't even really know what that means. I just think it's a bad idea. And I gave the reasons earlier. And then secondly, we, we need, we do need, we do need to encourage and foster the ability for people to come together. And in spite of diversity of view and opinion, be reasonable together. Like that's what we want to aim at. Now, and then quickly, the difference between rationality and reasonableness. This is a key distinction. Rationality is a, a narrower concept, generally construed, as it's used typically. So when you say that somebody's being irrational, you mean that their thinking doesn't make sense. Their, their, their conclusions don't follow from the premises, or they're doing things that are at odds with their own interests, or there's something seriously, epistemically, cognitively wrong with somebody that's being irrational at some fundamental level, if you're being irrational. So a lot of times what people will say is when confronted with someone who doesn't believe what they believe, right? Someone will say, well, that's just completely irrational. And I don't think that's what they should say when it comes to ideas that really fall under the concept of reasonableness. So you shouldn't call a billion, you know, there's a billion Muslims, I think, or over 2 billion something. I don't know. There are billions of Muslims, I believe. Probably you should not make the claim that they are all irrational. Like there's something seriously wrong with all of them. Like that's probably a really shitty claim to make. And um, you should reserve the narrow conception of rationality for instances in which you have a quick, rough and ready check. In other words, you can say, this person is being irrational, and you can point to 
in, like what they believe, what they said, and how they act, and it doesn't fit together. It's like the pieces of that puzzle are all are are all jumbled and they're irrational. And you can you can you can ferret that out. You can actually get at irrationality. Say, yeah, they're ira- that they're that person is being irrational. Um, and so that would be that would be the that would be the check. And the simplest cases would just be if you make deductive logic. <laughs> If you just make errors in, in, in inference, in deductive inference, where you say, the example I use in the book is that love is blind, God is love, Ray Charles is blind, therefore Ray Charles is God. If you go through and look at the premises and the conclusion, you can see that actually that doesn't follow. <laughs> it, do, it actually doesn't follow. It just sounds cool. It's like words that seem concepts that fit together nice like poetry but actually the the conclusion is fall for this so that's what that's rationality somebody who actually thought that that was true would have something seriously wrong with them and in that very narrow sense they would be being they would be irrational it would also be irrational in empiric in various empirical senses it's irrational to think that things are there that aren't there or to believe in probably it's irrational to believe in the great pumpkin Right, like to really think the great pumpkin is running around and so on, like there's something fucking wrong. I mean, there's just something wrong. Um, but here's the challenge, though: so people, Harris or you know Richard Dawkins or someone would say, well, yeah, and that's also historically religious people. In fact, it's everybody that isn't an that isn't that doesn't believe just in what we believe. Right. And so there's something wrong there too. And so kind of fi- figuring out how this all fits together is tricky. But whereas we can have, I think, technological solutions to perhaps to narrow rationality, that doesn't get us very far. We don't have technological solutions to reasonableness. And I think it would be folly to pursue them. Um, right. I mean, again, the, the overarching worry that I have is that the, the culture has already become so mechanized that the concept of reasonableness itself is starting to disappear and be subsumed into just narrow considerations of rationality, which also, by the way, are misapplied. So that everybody suddenly is irrational and or rational. And what we're really talking about is people who have different beliefs. We don't have a concept. We don't we we do have a concept. We don't we at our peril do we not continue to maintain and understand the difference between rationality and reasonableness. And we do have a concept of reasonableness, but it's not, it's not on autopilot. And it might, we, like we can see online and with new generations and as, as, the, as, the, there's, as we're sitting online with big tech and we're watching things pull apart in certain really, really worrisome ways, we can also see that our concept of reasonableness is not automatic is not maintained from generation to generation and decade to decade automatically. It's inculcated and instilled by culture. And if culture, if culture doesn't continue to put work into maintaining that necessary for a democracy, then we're going to, we're, we're going to threaten ourselves and our livelihoods. The, this is the last thing I'll say. The reason it's so important, it's important for everyone, really, but the reason a, a robust notion of reasonableness is so important for a democracy is that 
people have to fit together with a diversity of opinions. And that just can't happen unless there's some conceptual or epistemic glue. We can't have everybody, people just won't believe what you believe, (laughs) right? Like that's just not gonna work. We will have a diversity of beliefs and belief systems and opinions and values in a modern Western democracy. We, we are going to have that. Um, and, but when we do have that, there has to be something that somebody can say, wait, that's fucking crazy, okay? That's just no good. In fact, that's a blatant lie. That's a lie. And that is a blatant hoax. And that is a blatant conspiracy theory. And people can recognize this stuff. And so I think that's what we need to do. But I would, be, I would be shocked if the answer was more technology. I would think it would be properly circumscribing the role of technology in the broader cognitive and epistemic life. So that's what I would say.